This is the Education Gadfly Show. We have been doing podcasting way before it was cool, back when uh, the only other person doing it was Al Gore. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. Now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Subira Gordon. Subira, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Subira is the executive director of CONCAN, also known as the Connecticut Coalition for Achievement Now, part of the 50CAN network. And we are super excited to have her with us talking about a certain Secretary of Education designate who also comes from the Nutmeg State. Also joining us, as always, our co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Good to be here. Good to have you here. And both of you, welcome to 2021, our first podcast of 2021. I think that means we have been on the air, so to speak, for something like 15 years. We have been doing podcasting way before it was cool, back when uh, the only other person doing it was Al Gore. So that tells you how uh, uncool we really are. So... There you have it. Well, hey, Subira, really appreciate you coming on the show. You know, over the break that many of us enjoyed, the holiday break or right before it, uh, President-elect Joe Biden announced that he was going to nominate Miguel Cardona as the new Secretary of Education. Of course, uh, he will now have to go through Senate confirmation, but seemed like all the world in education policy, both the reformers and uh, folks in the teachers unions, seem to have nice things to say about this selection, even though very few people actually know him very well. Uh, his background is as a, a teacher, principal, the superintendent of a smallish district in Connecticut, and then a fairly brief tenure as Connecticut's state superintendent. But somebody who has known him for almost a decade now in many of his different roles he's played is Subira. So we're super excited to hear your perspective on him in Ed Reform Update. So Subira, tell us, how is it that you first got to know Miguel Cardona and how have you known him over the years? That's such a good intro. When you said almost 10 years, I think oh, I felt so old when you said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I yes. met um, Miguel Cardona back in 2012 when he did work on the Achievement Gap Task Force at the legislature. I was a legislative staffer. I essentially just kind of, we've, I guess for almost 10 years, been in a lot of the same spaces and just been fighting for a lot of the same things. Educational equity is kind of at the forefront of my work and all the things that I care about. And he is the same. We have similar backgrounds in the sense that his family is from Puerto Rico, my family is from Jamaica, and I grew up in Jamaica. So we have a lot in common in understanding cultural references, which he often tells stories about his mom and kind of how she shows up in places, which is very similar to how my mom shows up in places. They are always going to be their authentic island selves, which connects us. But um, in all seriousness, he is a very steady person. And I've seen that he really, really cares about kids, specifically cares about kids who have been marginalized and really wants the best for all kids um, across the spectrum, whether they attend a magnet school, charter school, traditional public school. And he has advocated as such when he was in Meriden as the assistant superintendent. And then when he got to be the commissioner, which is, I will say, as commissioner, we worked much closer than um, in his other previous roles. He was open and he brought us to the table in many places that Ed Reform would never have been. He was very clear that he wanted to work with everyone and didn't cherry pick. So all his decisions, he would bring us in and we would have really open conversations. Now that, that all sounds pretty encouraging, I have to say, especially when we were hearing other names floated that were certainly not uh, the kinds of folks that you would expect to bring in education reformers. 
uh, to the table. Tell us more about that commission back in 2012, this uh, Achievement Gap Commission, and, and some of the ideas that he was floating at the time. One of the, I think, the largest things that came out of that was looking at chronic absenteeism. So before the task force, you would look at, at there were excused absences and unexcused absences. I think what was found out from the work there was kids who had severe and chronic asthma would be counted as excused absences and it didn't show up so a child they like essentially it would show that someone missed school 10 days out of the year well essentially they missed 30 or 35 because they had chronic health conditions so chronic absenteeism is directly connected to graduation rates so one of the things that that task force flagged was you need to track every single absence so you can actually know when kids are falling behind and when they're not because if you would look at like if you we're tracking how the absenteeism rates in schools. Many schools were showing that they didn't have really high chronic absenteeism rates, despite the fact that they did, because you were counting excused versus unexcused absences. Something else that came out of that work was looking at housing and how it's connected to education. I will say this, Connecticut has not necessarily done the work necessary to solve some of these issues, but just looking at where a child lived and how that connected to their educational journey. Did they have access to fresh food? Did they have access to transportation? Something for us in ed reform that matters a lot is, did they have access to choices for education? Were they, you know, zoned into a certain district where they were, there was no schools of choice. There was no magnet school. There was no charter school. So just looking at more, I think they stepped back a bit from education and looked at a lot of what some of the outside influences were that were affecting kids and really gave strong recommendations to the legislature. And a lot of that has changed now. So looking at suspensions and expulsion, they really made sure that the state was tracking all of that. And it wasn't kind of, we didn't do a good job before the Achievement Gap Task Force to really say, okay, how many kids were suspended? Who are doing in-school suspensions versus out-of-school out suspension? A lot of it, I think, directly relates to how kids of color are treated in the education system mm -hmm. and making sure that we as a state had all the information we needed to make the right decisions. Interesting. And, and, you know, as we were talking about before the show, you know, these ideas back in 2012 were kind of new, right? I mean, the, you know, this certainly within the reform space, we were very narrowly focused on things that schools could control. But since then, there's been this broader conversation about other anti-poverty efforts like housing, how the housing mm -hmm. system and the education system connect uh, or could connect better. Uh, certainly, it sounds like what you're saying is he's, he's a data guy. I mean, this notion yep. of let's make sure we, we, we got to sweat the details on the data we're collecting and get things right. Yeah, of course, everybody wants to know kind of where is he going to come down on some of the big issues, right? Like standardized testing. Is he likely to waive the tests uh, for this spring or not? Like charter schools, you know, the Biden platform mm -hmm. uh, was, was in some ways pretty antagonistic towards charter schools or in, in indicated that they wanted to give school districts some veto power over new charters, which would be a huge setback for the charter movement, in my opinion, I think many of the opinion of the charter folks, right? Again, I know it's hard to play pundit and prognosticator, and, but do you have a sense of what, what we're likely to see on some of those fronts? He's been very clear that Connecticut is not waiving testing for the spring. Mm -hmm. At least that was where he was last time he was on the record on this. He thought there's no way to figure out what a kid missed if you don't if you didn't do the assessment to know where they need to go. So he has been I would say he's spot on when it comes to assessment. Um, I don't know, you know, what how he will approach that from a national level, but I will say um, everybody knew last year was kind of, you know, 
it was hard to test last year, but he's been pretty clear that we're going to be doing testing in Connecticut in 2021. As far as charter schools, I've known him to be supportive of a parent's right to choose what school is the best one for their child. I can't speak to what his national platform will be on charters, but I have not found him to be unfriendly whatsoever to the charter movement. There's always room for growth, I think, for me, from a lot of people who are not necessarily where I am. But I have not really seen him to be an anti-charter person whatsoever. Um, I don't know what national, how national politics is going to play into how he approaches it. But he does believe that a parent, and only a parent, should be the person who decides where their kid goes to school. It shouldn't be something that's done by any anyone else. And that's how I've seen him approach everything Um as far as his approach to madness and charters and Connecticut has a pretty big open choice program that was decided through Chef versus O'Neill. So there's a large magnet school program in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. He's been pretty supportive of, you know, getting kids from urban areas, suburban areas, and similarly from suburban areas into urban areas because he kind of agrees that that's a great way for kids to be exposed to great education. Again, that all sounds really good. Uh, David, any questions that you've got? Yeah, I mean, it is it is a little tough when we don't have the man here himself, right? We Some of these are questions we should put directly to him. But I guess I'm curious just to know, I mean, going back to temperament, do you think he's temperamentally inclined to be, I don't want to say activist because that has sort of negative connotations, right? Mm-hmm. But do you think this is going to be an energetic yeah. Department of Education or do you think it's sort of going to be a Department of Education that sticks to its knitting? Will be he, he be in the news the way... Uh, <laughs> Secretary DeVos was. I mean, that that would be surprising if he were in the news quite that much. But sort of what's your take on, I guess, how fast and aggressively the department is going to drive while he's in charge? So I'm trying to think of the best word to use to describe him. He is a steady hand. I, and I can give a couple of examples. He was, and our governor has, they've been pretty committed to keeping schools open. A lot because the science kind of showed in Connecticut, like where the rates were, and his administration did not take kindly to districts that just decided to stay closed because logistically it was too hard to figure it out. Some of like when the rates started creeping up and getting higher, they supported districts who wanted to close. But he also was not in the news chastising the districts who decided to stay closed. He had more of, you know, he met with community advocates. He met with folks who he thought could have an influence in some of the local decisions. But, you know, even though he really believed that the right thing to do, specifically for kids in urban centers that didn't have access to technology prior to the state making sure that Connecticut got to a one-to-one ratio, he knew it was really important for kids to connect to each other and to connect to their educators. He's also, uh, Concan's done a lot of work around minority teacher recruitment and retention. And he's been one of those people who's been at the table and at the forefront of that, of those conversations. And only when he saw the need to step up and really, you know, publicly talk about what some of the gains were that they were making. And they started to use college students to fill some of the gaps around educators that, because we just haven't had a chronic shortage during the pandemic. He was in the news for that. But I will say, like, he'll celebrate things that are victories, but he does not use the media to push either the legislature or whoever else he thinks needs to be pushed to make the right decisions. He's not that kind of person. People might criticize him. I'm not going to say he wasn't criticized 
at length for his decisions to support districts that wanted to stay open. But he really was not the kind, he did not push back and he kind of fought those battles behind the scenes. All right. Well, hey, Subira, again, we really appreciate your insights and your time. I've learned a ton. I'm sure our listeners have as well. It'll be fun to watch. It it certainly, again, sounds like he's a great pick. And uh, here's hoping that that turns out to be the case. Again, Subira Gordon, the executive director of CONCAN. And I hope you might come on the show uh, sometime in the future. We'll talk about how how things are panning out uh, at the national level, maybe in Connecticut, too. Yeah, thanks for the invite. Happy to share some insights about someone that I've known for, as you said, almost a decade. All right, great. Thanks again, Sujira. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. You know, Amber, usually at this time we have some chit-chatting back and forth and jokey-jokey, but I have to say uh, it doesn't quite feel right right now as... uh, Those of us at Fordham know, but our listeners don't yet know, you've been missing because you were going through an awful, awful time and a time that ended with losing your beloved husband, Rob. Uh, Just such a tragic thing after a a three-year battle with cancer at the way, 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 way too early age of 49. Uh, I am just, on behalf of everybody on the show, listening and producing and otherwise, we are just so, so heartbroken for you, Amber. Yeah, thank you, Mike. I mean, I think, you know, I had... I don't know. I'd asked you to mention it, honestly, not because I necessarily needed it broadcast, but what I'm finding is that it, it helps me just to like brag on my husband every now and then. Um, and he listened to the show. He loved the show. He loved bragging on me, frankly. Um, and so I thought, you know what, I, I would just like to share a quick little story and then I'm going to get into the what we're going to do today. But one is that my husband had not had decided before I met him that he was not going to say no uh, to any person, any anyone in his family, any colleague, any friend or associate for a year, um, just because he just wanted to help people. And I thought, like, who in the world does that? Who decides they're not going to say no to anyone ever for a year? Um, but anyway, he did. And um, and he just used to talk to me about how much that just expanded his, his love for other people. And the, what a good reminder that we just need to you know, put others before ourselves a lot of times and when then that's not naturally how we behave. So anyway, I just wanted to uh, remind all our listeners as we look at a, at a new year, a new year that, you know, feels kind of bleak still already, uh, even though we were hoping we were leaving this behind in 2020. But, um, but that really putting people first and taking the time to care about others uh, and, and love on people is, is really our first mission as human beings uh, and one that one that my husband did so well and just was honored to be his wife for the time that I was and obviously wanted more time, but, but we didn't get it, but, um, but just keep talking about him and, you know, bragging on him when I can, Mike. Well, Amber, I, you know, I, I was so blessed to be at the funeral and to hear uh, his friends and family talk about him. This, this was a very special guy. Uh, and from an early age, uh, it was, and, and to hear your father speak about him and his times that he That's enjoyed right. with Rob was uh, particularly touching and a real hoot. Um, yeah, well, we, again, we, we all express our condolences and uh, anytime you want to talk about him, uh, I think we, we would love to hear because he is special. <laughs> yeah, special. thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. All right. So it is the first episode of 2021 and you've now made a tradition in recent years of using that time to talk about the best research studies of the previous year. So what are those best research studies of 2020? All right. Uh, We've got the top five 
Um, I think the one thing I want to, you, you know, just remind you guys of is that this year, I just tried to prioritize studies that provided new information on, you know, little known topics. I felt like that was a theme that I kept seeing this year that it might not have been the, you know, the rigorous causal design or, or that sort of thing. But there were quite a few studies that just tackled new questions that I had not seen a lot of research on. And, and so that's what I want to highlight primarily. So number five, we'll count them down. In May, I, I normally don't do studies outside of the U.S., but there were a couple this year that I thought were really interesting and strong. And this one was whether teachers improve by teaching the same material to different classes of students. There's so little done about, you know, and middle and high school teachers do this every day. And so this was a study in the Netherlands at a university business school, but it was, it happened to be the second randomized control study of teaching repetition that's ever been conducted. So it caught my eye. Analysts looked at 731 different instructors and seniority. They basically found that these instructors were teaching about two and a half sections of each course over six years. Students were randomly assigned to sections within a course. And the main analysis relied on comparisons between students in an instructor's later course relative to peers in the first section that had the same course plan. Bottom line, they found little impact for any of the outcomes they were, they were analyzing in terms of student grades, the estimates for the, the kids in the first section relative to the third or fourth section, they weren't significant. Uh, ditto for the effects of teaching repetition on the probability of dropping out of the course. Little evidence that teaching repetition led to better teaching evaluations. Then they looked at prior teaching experience and they found just tiny differences. So inexperienced instructors were not benefiting from teaching repetition compared to their more experienced colleagues. Then they looked at whether it mattered whether they had a break, similar to how our American teachers have a planning period. And they found, again, little meaningful differences relative to whether teachers had breaks in between teaching these same courses. So researchers basically said, you know, our teachers, our instructors, if they cover multiple sections of the same course, it neither helps nor hurts their teaching effectiveness. And we had a little discussion on the podcast, you know, well, should we be encouraged that, you know, tedium doesn't lead to, you know, lags on the part of teachers? Mm -hmm. Or does that really scare us that we're not seeing a boost in short-term performance that perhaps teachers aren't doing what we see CMO, high-performing CMO teachers do relative to making adjustments on the fly? I, I just love that we, we think about teacher improvement usually over years <laughs> rather than this one looked at it over hours, right? The, the, yeah, uh, same you day. get better between first period and third period. Uh, so not fascinating. <laughs> All right, number four. In July, I brought you a study from professors at Brown. I think this was Susanna Loeb and colleagues at Syracuse. They answered mostly descriptive questions about America's substitute teachers. Another, you know, area that I mean, what do we know about substitute teachers? Very little. Uh, it found, among other things, that white and Asian teachers are more likely to have their absences covered than are black and Hispanic teachers. Teacher absences are higher in schools with more black and Hispanic students, higher poverty levels, and more staff turnover. Uh, they looked at an unnamed large district. All teachers were absent an average of 11.8 days per year. Mostly that was sick leave. Mostly it was covered by subs, but when the subs didn't cover, they found that the students were often split up into other classrooms with permanent teachers or a teacher with a prep period covered the class. And, and these are types of things that teachers normally do. And then they dug into like, you know, when are absences more and less likely to be covered? They found that short notice was a real problem. They're far less likely to be covered by subs. Jobs beginning on Mondays have higher coverage rates than jobs beginning on Fridays. 
and that teachers and substitute teachers rather consistently preferred one subset of schools while avoiding another subset. Uh, Those avoided schools have lower average achievement and higher suspension rates. And then that led us, you may recall, to a pretty good discussion about the need for schools to have sensible practices to cover classes when teachers are absent. We talked about, I think, Mike, you brought up having a few permanent subs that kind of serve as, you know, utility players that can kind of kind of fill in wherever. So that was number four. I think my only comment is 12 absences a year is too many. (laughs) Yes, you did a little study about that yourself. Anyhow, number three. In August, uh, I covered a study by Matthew Kraft and colleagues that finds an in-person teaching time in the classroom, that's the thing that many kids don't have, uh, don't have right now, uh, was not properly safeguarded. Uh, maybe you remember he delved into external interruptions during class, which is something, again, we don't know a lot about. Intercom announcements, visits from other teachers or staff, calls to the teacher's desk, tardy students, all those things. They looked at a ton of classroom observational data, which is so hard to get. In a large school district in 2017, they found, among other things, there were 2.9 interruptions per hour of class or 15.3 per school day. On average, students arriving late were the leading source of external external interruption, comprising about almost 40% of the total. Second problem, visits from teachers and staff. They tended to be teachers looking to borrow materials or other staff delivering messages to students. Intercom announcements was the third most popular, so to speak, interruption. What I thought was kind of interesting, again, is that half of the interruptions ended up in disruptions that lasted longer than the interruption itself. So sort of like a domino effect of, you know, this leads to some kid marching in late and then telling everybody why. Accounting for all this, the average length of time lost for each interruption and possible disruption was 78 seconds. The authors project that students lose nearly 10 days across an academic year due to external interruptions that most of them could be controlled if the school leaders had different policies in place. So remember school that climate, one? School climate, school climate. Like you, if you read Doug Lamov's stuff, you know, Teach Like a Champion, I mean, if there's anything it's about, it's about just how precious class time is and how to maximize it and just what an uphill battle now we see from the study that it, that it can be in so many of these schools. That's yeah. right. Nickel and dimed. <laughs> All right, number two, standardized testing. Opponents tend to object to the testing itself and then how the results are used. There was a study that came out of Denmark, looked at whether when you delivered feedback uh, to parents about their child's performance, how that affected that child along a variety of academic and social emotional dimensions. They actually found that the more negative sounding labels received in third grade math generated significant increases in math achievement in sixth grade compared to students who received the more positive labels. Uh, In fact, this was true regardless of the child's ability level meaning that they observed a similar pattern of improvement all along their performance distribution. Still, students who fell below that lowest threshold where they got the label that, was, that said you're considerably below average, they appeared to benefit even more from having that test information. And then analysts uh, dove in and they determined that the effects seemed driven mostly by boys who perhaps on, based on prior uh, research often overestimate their math abilities compared to girls. And they hypothesize that maybe a negative label served as a reality check for some of these kids to step it up. It's incredibly important, honestly. I mean, we could skim right by it, but I think there are just so many people out there, including me, depending on the day, who worry about sort of sending negative messages to kids. 
And it turns out we're wrong, or at least the study would imply that we're wrong. Well, um, and, and does it, what findings would we get in America if we did this study? You know, we've, many of us have been disappointed that providing more accurate test score results to families has not resulted in uh, an epiphany among the families saying, oh my goodness, our kids need to be doing much better, could be doing better, let's uh, do something to change that. At least we don't have much evidence that that's happening, so... Yeah. Is that well, because of cultural differences or, or something? Yeah, and we don't have time for it, but that's a good point. All right. And number one, again, this was kind of tricky, but um, I went back to our old faithful. We always seem to talk about suspensions. We spent a lot of time at Fordham talking about the impact of suspensions and how hard it is to study. So in March, I brought you a study on suspensions and academic achievement. What was different about this one is that you know, lots of the other studies are potentially discriminatory misuse of suspensions and the social implications of that one way or the other. But this study, however, looked at the academic effects of suspensions on non-suspended peers, which is harder and less studied. Uh, you may recall they measured suspensions at both the school and classroom level. What was unique is that they took advantage of the fact that the students in, the, in this particular district took quarterly achievement tests in both math and ELA, which allowed them to better estimate how changes in suspensions associate with changes in student achievement. Uh, they were in effect tracking quarter by quarter changes in student achievement and linking them to shifts in the use of suspensions in students' classrooms. Mind you, it still didn't allow them to separate the effects of peer suspension from the effects of peer misbehavior on learning, but it was still a pretty big improvement based on uh, prior studies of, a, of the topic. They found, maybe you recall, that Hispanic students, low-income students, and English language learners were more likely to be exposed to suspended classmates. Neither schoolmate ISS nor schoolmate OSS were linked to the achievement of non-suspended students. However, at the classroom level, classmate suspensions were associated on average with improved math achievement. For example, an increase in OSS in a classroom was associated with a 0.024 standard deviation increase in the math achievement of non-suspended students. Pretty small, but still. Uh, analysts posit that orderly learning environments may be more important in math since many kids find math challenging. That was that one. Well, and it could be that we, you know, schools just seem to have less impact on reading as we keep learning. Hey, since this study, you know, we, we've seen this huge experiment with remote learning. And as I argue in a new piece in Education Next, one thing that we've noticed is that some teachers are getting used to uh, teaching kids both in person and online at the same time. Not that that is easy or ideal, but it is technologically feasible. You know, you have a camera on the teacher and uh, on the other end, a kid could be watching. Well, the kids in, in school suspension could be still following along, you know, with that kind of pretty basic technology. So that's maybe something we should experiment with going forward uh, because, yeah, let's do everything we can to make sure that class time, again, is sacrosanct and disruptions, including disruptions from unruly kids, something we got to prevent against. <laughs> including during podcasts, right, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, including your podcast. Uh, yes, uh, re referring to, yes, the hooligans in my house right now. Who, uh, I'm sure they're who are, watching oh, risk of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wow, Amber, that is, a great, that is a great group of studies. I love it that they are, you know, concrete and actionable. And, oh my goodness, how far we have come in the world of education research since this uh, podcast first went on the air. Indeed. You know, I, I don't hear people complaining as much anymore about how there's there's no good research on instructional practice. Uh, we seem to be getting more and more uh, all the time. So way to go research field. That's right. Keep studying those lesser studied questions. That's, uh, that's super interesting. All right. Well, hey, 
Great stuff. That is all the time that we've got for this week. But don't worry, we will be back next week. So until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.